Good morning, South City Church. It's great to see you all this morning. Thank you, Kim and the team. What an awesome job you guys do. Can we give them a hand? I love to sing and worship, but I can't keep a tune very well. So I love when I get to hear the team do what they do and I can blend in with the crowd. It's good to see you all this morning. Drew, thank you for your kind words and introduction. I love you, bro. And we are family for life, right? We're all God's family. And uh, he's up to some cool things here. I'm going to try to cover a fair amount of ground this morning. And so I want to jump right in uh, and talk about the greatest force for good in the world. That being the church. But my question for us this morning is, do we really believe that? When we say the greatest force for good in the world is the church... Do we just give lip service to it and go, yeah, I know God created that. Jesus launched that. It's a great thing. But sometimes I think, I'm just one person. What can I do? Or even us as a congregation and go, we're just one church. What can we do in that process? And I think even when we say that, it almost hints at self-defeat. Because we kind of feel differently than what we what we say when we think about that being the greatest force for good. I'm borrowing some thoughts this morning from Pastor Rick Warren, because I think he did a great job making some of these points. But I want to start with a, <clears throat> excuse me, a personal story that uh, I had the opportunity to, to be in a conference in Washington, D.C. a few years ago. And this is a photo I took in that conference of General Stanley McChrystal. And he was having this talk was in 2015. And he tells about how he found himself in this situation in 2004 where he was the uh, Joint Special Operations Command, and he quickly found that conventional military tactics were not working. The old rules no longer applied. So you think about when 2004 happened, right after 2001 and 9-11. So they're fighting Al-Qaeda in Iraq. There was a decentralized network that could move quickly, they could strike ruthlessly, and then they seemed to just vanish into the population. It's like, where's the enemy? Who are we fighting? Where did they go? And he would have to teach this largest army military force in the world how to become smaller teams, how to be effective, and with decentralized decision-making authority. Like everybody needed to learn how to make decisions on the ground very, very quickly and match the speed and agility of the enemy. That was the challenge of the day. And he said... In his book, the environment in which we found ourselves demanded a dynamic and constant changing approach. And this is what I thought was really profound when he shared this. For a soldier trained at West Point as an engineer, which I can relate to, the idea that a problem has different solutions on different days was fundamentally disturbing. Like, that's the kind of problem we're trying to solve. He's like, what am I supposed to do about this problem? And so one of the historical examples that he shares in a book, in his book, is a story. It's a little more familiar to us, uh, and it's about the Apollo 11 space mission. Specifically, sending a man to the moon. Now you think about that. We don't think much about it today, but back in the day when that was a new idea, it was like, how in the world would we solve that complex problem? That's too big. And so I want to share with you when... When President John Kennedy made that statement, it was in 1962 when he told the story. And not just send a man to the moon. What I want you to listen to the words he used. 
in that famous speech where he pledged the United States would send humans 240,000 miles away from the control station in Houston in a giant rocket that's more than 300 feet tall. It's made of new metal alloys, some of which had not even been invented yet, capable of standing heat and stresses several times more than had ever been experienced. It was all going to be fitted together with precision, precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food, and survival on an uncharted mission to an unknown celestial body, and then return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half that of the temperature of the sun, and do all this and do it right and do it first before the end of the decade. Can you imagine sitting in the audience that day and go, has he lost his mind? What are we going to do? But that was his challenge. And that is the story that General Stanley McChrystal drew upon when he said, how do we solve a complex problem that seems insurmountable? Now for us, we know the end of that story. You know, the Apollo project is generally considered as one of the greatest technological endeavors in the history of mankind. But in order to achieve that, the managerial effort, the management of that task was no less prodigious than the technological one that was required. And here's what was interesting that General McChrystal drew upon. This man right here that's mentioned in his book, look at the title of his book, Team of Teams. You think about that, how to create teams out of teams, new rules of engagement in a complex world. And his point was, George Mueller was the guy that NASA brought in in 1963 to figure out how we're going to manage this problem. So this is really important. He said, McChrystal writes, in 1963, NASA brought in George Mueller to build the managerial foundation of the Apollo program, and he brought a sea of change with him. Mueller brought the perspective of an electrical engineer who aspired to create the, the nervous system of communication with hundreds of thousands of people that were required to accomplish the task at hand. And for several months afterward, the staff headquarters at NASA was in turmoil as the staff learned how to become executives. They had to learn how to think and make decisions on their own. And eventually, the teams were be, would be given problems first thing in the morning and have that problem solved before going home that evening. They got better at it. And they had hundreds of thousands of people solving all the little problems it took to accomplish the mission. So isn't that interesting that, um, you know, I thought it was great how he drew upon that story, something we're a little more familiar with, and go, okay, we live in a complex world, and there are some complex problems. But let's think about how we can work on those together. Now, I had to tell you a little bit about myself in this slide. I live in a somewhat complex world. There's some of the things we get to do at Brown Engineers. If you used any water this morning to take a shower or whatever, drink or get a glass of water, make your coffee, that's the control systems at Central Arkansas Water that we get to help to develop to move that water around the city and do what we do. Energy, buildings, all kinds of fun stuff, right? Those are somewhat complex things in the world I live in. I also get to have some ranching opportunities, and this is a picture that Casey took with his new drone he got for Christmas, so I had to share this. Now, I like cattle partly because I like to eat but partly, too, because it gets me out from behind the computer and I get to actually see how God's making the grass grow and the animals work and things that are working in a little different way. And I enjoy that a lot. But I also want to show you 
This picture right here is one of my favorite things. That is my view from my vantage point at about 6 a.m. one morning in a cohort of the group of guys coming together to say, we're going to study the scripture together. We're going to learn how to solve complex problems together. And we're going to do it in a discussion way where we can actually learn like what's going on together. That picture is probably almost two years old, isn't it, Drew? Uh, but that is one of my favorite things. And that's how, that's one of the ways that we learn to solve problems together around Scripture, and we're doing it in a way that builds leadership development, and we're doing it where we can scale it. Now you understand why I talked about General McChrystal being able to scale and coordinate and do the kinds of things we're doing in very large numbers. That's why I love being a part of the City Church Network and the Antioch Initiative, where we're working to train. We've already trained 400 leaders in some of those processes. We'd really like to scale it to 10,000 leaders in 10 years. And you're like, ooh, that's a scary big number, right? And go, not really. Not when you think about the opportunity before us to develop a citywide training network. And I'll touch on rebuilding more um, in a minute. But those are some of the things that we get to be involved in. But what is the goal with all that? Is it merely more knowledge? Is that just an academic program to get a certificate that we attended another class? Is it merely another sermon to get more knowledge about how to, how to share information? Or is it more about what I want to talk about today is human flourishing or seeking the welfare of the city? And Drew did a great job last week talking about seek the welfare of the city. Because I think sometimes there's a disconnect in my mind between, well, there's the church, but seek the welfare of the city. Isn't that someone else's job? Whose job is it? That's why I want to talk to you about the greatest force for good in the world, being the church. That was a long intro to get you thinking about some of those things. Look at this. God wanted a family first. He wanted the church. God wanted to be in relationship with us. And the universe exists because God wanted a family. It's all these other things that we get to be a part of because God wanted a family. It's important to understand how he established that. We've used this verse many times. But I want you to think about it again this morning in the context of what we're solving comp complex problems with. Ephesians 3, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's purpose to build a family and display his wisdom to the world through the church. Now, we see a lot of things going on in our culture. Is there any goodness in our culture anymore? Oh, my word. Are we losing our civility? I thought about this week in particular, of all weeks, to be talking about losing our civility in our culture and go, oh, my goodness, it's crazy. But I want you to remember that. The government's not going to send revival. The revival won't come through government. The revival will come through Jesus Christ and his church that he's employed here to be able to do that. So we have a significant challenge ahead uh, in what he's called us to do. However, the church has several advantages that even government or business or other institutions do not have. I want us to think about that for a minute. The church has the largest participation, 2.3 billion Christians in the world. That is a big number. It's sometimes hard for me to get around, you know, billions and trillions, trying to get those so, but 2.3 billion. Now, are we all the same flavor or the same brand and all those? Same? Maybe not. 
But if you believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you believe in the Scripture as God's inspired world, you're Christian. That's 2.3 billion people worldwide. Look at the size of the team you're with. You won't hear that on the evening, evening news when you feel marginalized or I'm only one person or I'm getting pushed back on the... No, 2.3 billion people in the world. Largest organization in the world. You think Jesus knew what he was doing? Of course he did. Bigger than the U.S. and Europe put together. Bigger than China. Big, big numbers. That is some advantage we have. The church has over every other institution. There's more. In one Sunday in America, more people will gather for church on one weekend than all the other sporting events combined all year long. You, Super Bowl Sunday. That's a big event, isn't it? You think about how many people are gathering for church all around the world today. Bigger than all the other sporting events combined. It's truly worldwide. It's the only thing big enough to handle disasters in the world. It's the longest continuation of doing good than any other group over 2,000 years. You know, the church invented the hospital. So that's a popular topic of discussion over the last few years. Like, health care. Who should do The government should do health care. Who's going to do health care? It's like the church invented the hospital. The church has been doing health care for more than 2,000 years. But do we still think about the church in that regard of making a difference in our culture? Engaged in a way where we go, wow, that is a big deal. It also has the simplest administration. Think about that. It's decentralized. Isn't that what General McChrystal figured out? He's like, hey, i got a big army, but I need everybody on board making decisions locally. Every person being gifted as a minister. Everyone on mission and using their gifts. When everyone's on mission and using their gifts in the church, the church explodes. People want to be a part of a mission. It's like, just tell me how. Just tell me what, what I can do to help. Even Napoleon was quoted, great soldier and warrior, there lies a sleeping giant. If it ever wakes, it will shake the world. Think about how many hundreds of years ago that was written. So it's important to understand the greatest force for good in the world is the church. And I hope that's an encouragement to you because that's the opposite of how sometimes we feel. I'm just one person. We're just one congregation. We're just those things. No, it's big. It's a really, really big deal. We have the power of God with us. And that's why we, you've heard me say this before. There's no such thing as laity. The term laity is one of the worst in the vocabulary of religion and ought to be banished from Christian conversation. <laughs> a few years ago, I wouldn't have thought myself standing up here having this talk with you. It's like, I'm really much more happy being a behind-the-scenes kind of person, right? Right, okay. There's no such thing as laity. Look at 2 Timothy 2. To share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That sounds like a soldier with a job to do, doesn't it? A mission to accomplish. I even thought about this. When you think about South City and you think, where is South City in the world? It's like just that little bubble on the map in southwest Little Rock, is that the, the building of South City? Is that who we are? Daryl shared with me the latest Citigroup map of where South City Church is all around central Arkansas. That's over 109 engaged families and city groups that are meeting all over central Arkansas. That's South City. That's a big deal, guys. 
The influence and the scope of our mission, I think sometimes we forget how big it is and the power that God's given us to do that. Also had to share this one slide. This is a Barna research study that asked people that were lapsed Christians. They really weren't engaged. Um, but he asked this question about what would get you more interested in learning about Christianity. It said, I'd be more interested in learning about Christianity if... And you probably can't read all that from back there. But the biggest one on the left side of the page, over a third of people said, I would be more interested if I saw various churches in my community working together more. See, they don't want to see the fragmentation and the little stuff. They want to see the power of Jesus Christ and his church doing stuff and working together. That's what's going to get people's attention uh, in our neighborhoods, in our school, in our work, in, our, in the places where we engage people. They want to know. They just want to see some evidence of what it's done in your life. You see, working together, Christians earn the right to share the gospel by serving the physical and social needs of the city. It's like they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Then they'll ask questions and they'll be listening. So the serving opportunities there, as we know here, are, are large. Now, I'm going to switch gears for a minute. So that's some information about the church, the power of the church, what God's doing with the church. And I want us to think about our Bible for a minute. And I want us to talk about how we study it and what the structure of it is. I want to ask this question. What is the structure of the Bible? What's the framework, particularly of the New Testament in the church age? And if we could take that Bible and if we could like x-ray it and say, well, like, show me where the bones are. Where's the meat? Where's the structure of this thing that I can, I can understand and I can, I can really talk about what is the power of the church in the New Testament and what our role is in mission and I thought of this picture as like we oftentimes, we, get, we go to a microscopic view of Scripture. And we, we study the word and we do word counts and we look up the Greek meaning of the word so that we fully understand the meaning and we study it. And, we, and that's all wonderful. I'm not knocking any of that. But we spend a lot of time there, don't we? We spend weeks and months working through Scripture passages and getting into the detail. And those are all good things. But what I want us to talk about today is a macro view, a big picture the big picture of what's going on and look at the larger theme within the work of the New Testament. All right, so here are a breakdown with Paul's early letters and Paul's middle letters. I'm just thinking about uh, one of the first books he wrote was Galatians. We spent quite a bit of time in recent weeks going through the book of Galatians. And so we see uh, the fight for the gospel. And Paul, Paul's being an apostle and he's fighting for the gospel and he's wanting to make sure they have real clarity about what the gospel means. And then he writes to the Thessalonians and the Corinth church and Romans. And then later in time, a year or so later, he begins these middle letters uh, and goes and changes his, his direction a little bit in those. So just think about the timing of those. I know you can't read everything on those slides. I'm not expecting you to. But the column on the left side is his early letters, and that's what I just described. Paul's battle for clarity, his apostleship, and the, and the clarity of the gospel. Or in, in some cases in our first principle study, you talk about the kerygma, the initial message of the gospel, and that we need to be real clear about that. And he spends his time talking in Galatians and Corinthians and Thessalonians about that subject. But if you move to the middle column in his middle letters, he says, okay, we've got the gospel now. Let's talk about the plan. Let's talk about the mission. And he says, the church is the plan. 
that you get that the church is the plan. That's the thing we've been talking about. It's like, I don't care how discouraged we get about the church. I was hurt in the church. I was wounded in the church. Something bad happened to me at church. Yeah, the church is made up of sinful, uh, fallible people. That doesn't mean we need to give up on the church, right? So we got to stick with that. The church is the plan. The mystery is revealed. All the people are called in to be in a part, invited to be a part of the family of God. We want to live accordingly. That means to be rooted, established, and built up in the faith. And then he says, and come participate with us. This is how we achieve our mission and our plan, uh, by being on teams of people that can do that. And then in the third column, the later letters, he says, I want you to teach the way of life. I want you to put churches in order. He says, I want you to appoint elders, instruct people uh, to be devoted to good works. And then I want you to entrust and equip everyone. I want you to equip everyone to be on mission. So if you looked at that structure and said that's the, the way Paul was moving people through a training process and how he did that. This one just touches on a couple of those same concepts when it says Paul's middle letters in particular were providing a complete picture of Christ's instruction to the church. Now I think for a minute about when Jesus came, three or so years of ministry on earth, and then he leaves then he launches the church, and now Paul's going through, and he's starting. Paul's one of the first ones to start writing down what's going on because he's having to leave and go to other places. He said, but I'm going to write you a letter, or I'm going to send another guy back to you. I'm going to stay in touch with this big old network that we're creating. But the Gospels of what Jesus, they're talking about what Jesus did because it was fascinating, but the Gospels didn't actually get written until many years later. So what they had for written instruction was Paul's letters. Paul's letter to the church was one of the most powerful things that had happened to them to be able to explain to them what they needed to do. And so he was saying in Ephesians, hey, the church is the plan. He's like this, say, hey, elders, you're an important and influential hub city in our work. And I want to make something very clear to you, Paul writes. It's been a mystery in days past, but now it's clear that all the churches, the church is the centerpiece in the, in the expansion of God's kingdom. That's what Paul's communicating to them. And then he says in Colossians and Philemon, he says, Hey there, you group of churches, you cluster of churches in that area. You now need to live according to the mystery of the plan. And teach and equip everyone on how to be a part of that. By the time he gets to Philippians, he's encouraging them. Hey, my unique and special church in Philippi, I want you to continue to participate with us in the furtherance of the gospel. See, Paul wasn't out there all by himself. He was thanking a great church in Philippi that said, you, thank you for your partnership in the gospel with me. See, that church had a role to play. It wasn't just an isolated little group that said, hey, we're going to keep microscopically studying the scripture and praying. They understood they were on mission with Paul. They supported him in a lot of ways. So that's how the team worked. That's what I think about when I think about x-raying the Bible and go, what, what is the structure of that? What is going on? So that we can learn from that model. And so when I think about this verse, when I think about seeking the welfare of the city where I sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare, a flourishing city in the process of that. And that's a Jeremiah 29 passage. Here's a more later one. Toward the very end of Paul's ministry in Titus, He's saying, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Not just kind of talk about it, do it if you want to. I want you to insist on these things when you teach the church about this. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to what? 
devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, Titus 3.8. Then he goes on just a few verses after that, and he says it one more time at the very end of the book, at the very end of his letter. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I don't want to be unfruitful to you. But when I ask myself, how do I do this church thing? I go, man, I don't know. But devoting ourselves to good works, teaching, training, not being unfruitful. I summarize it like this. Engaging in good deeds or providing for, you know, to meet pressing needs and solve complex problems. Because that's the day and age that we live in. But getting the church in the game where people recognize it as the resource that we go to for those things and using your gifts you're being equipped for ministry as a part of that uh, not just a, a professional Christian the staff, the elites Like no, 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 no equipping the church to do ministry we all have a role to play so one other example I want to share with you kind of how there's a lot of hows this, this, at this point in the conversation you could go a lot of directions but I want to show you one specific way that I believe is, is critical, uh, especially here in Little Rock. I think bringing this a little closer to home is really important. And that is the collective impact of the church through vital families. Thinking about families as being the basic structure uh, in life that we need to leverage that in a Christian, biblical way to impact and make a difference in a flourishing city. See, a basic family structure is key and um, here's what some of that looks like. Starting on the left side, the families, the basic structure of the family, which we've studied here. This is not new information to South City, but the family being a key unit of that is important. I even heard on the news channel the other day, the stock ticker was going, the news guy was talking, and everything was happening there. And he made this statement that uh, family formation is the key to economic success. And I was like, well, stop a minute. That was like national news. Family formation is key to economic success. And I was like, well, yeah, he's absolutely right. And God knew that thousands of years ago. He instituted the family. And then he did, God did something even more genius. He turned the church into a family of families. He said, hey, Jews, Gentiles, everybody, there's no partiality here. Come on in. You think that didn't freak some people out? He go, no, 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 I have special status here. Not anymore. Not in the new plan and what God's doing. We're all one family. And he's creating families of families with church. And church is plural to be able to work together to do some of the things and solve some of the complex things in society that we're talking about. And you move that out into society and I think particularly around schools. Because schools are a unique place in our culture where kids are coming to get educated but the parents are connected there. And... I want to submit to you that um, in Jim Collins' book, Moving from Good to Great, I want to use this, that analogy when I think about this. I think when people are going out to mentor kids in school, I think that is a very, very good thing to do. I do not think it is the greatest thing we could be doing as the church. And you go, oh, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? It's like we need to help kids read. We need to help them with their homework and their after school and their reading and learn how to do those things. But what's going to make a difference in those kids' lives will be if they have a support system and a family around them to teach them all the things they need to learn about life. And so what I'm submitting to you is that we need programs where the church can say, hey, we want to be here to help you, and we'll help mentor kids after school. But in order to do that part of the thing, 
the parents of those kids need to come over here and have a dinner and we have a conversation together and we learn how to do relationship together in a way that is a family of families where we get to preach the gospel, speak into people's lives, and train them and do all the other things that need to be. That's moving from good to great. That's what I hope we can do in the city where every church has a school to adopt, uh, but there are not just going out to the school to do that. It's like, come over here to South City and be a, a part of what we're doing and help relationally learn God's plan for life. That is a much greater thing that we can do. And there's life rebuilding processes in that. Some people have had setbacks in life where it, it, it makes it incredibly hard for them to ever get ahead. And so um, that's a whole other area of endeavor that we need to learn how to do to be able to help with that. Daryl's helping in our city write one of the manuals on how are the, what are the resources and the different people and churches and experts and attorneys and nonprofit organizations. All the things it takes to navigate the complex world we live in will be how will we learn to navigate this in a church way that's healthy and Relate, builds relationships with people that will make a difference in their life. Those are things we can absolutely do to, to build a flourishing city and so that it doesn't feel like some, like, oh, we're going to the moon in a space rocket. It's not that far out there. It's like, no, we have the tools and the ability to teach and train and do this relationally. I just don't know that we always tap into the resources and realize what God has given us in that. And so we actually have uh, a couple of folks in our midst as well who are doing that. I know um, Ann and Caro's over there. Wave your hand, Ann. Uh, Jason's at work in Dallas somewhere today, so he's not here. But Jason and Ann moved here to Little Rock from Houston uh, to be a part of Family Life Ministries. And Family Life has actually given them full time to the City Church Network in Little Rock to help promote the kinds of ministries and the conversations that we're talking about here. That is phenomenal, that God is bringing people here to do the kinds of things that we have felt in our hearts was a calling for that, and sometimes they just show up amazingly. It's wonderful how God works in that way. I want to share with you this quote from a guy who'd been doing men's discipleship for a long time <clears throat> after being through this biblical leadership development process. This is, this is important. He said, my approach to discipleship has been very focused on small groups of men. Again, nothing wrong with that, guys. Okay, that's a good thing. But the biblical approach to spiritual family and community is profound. I tried to look up references in Scripture to household and family, and I couldn't believe how saturated Scripture is with that concept. In establishing churches with a household paradigm, it marries church, discipleship, leadership development, and missions. Isn't that amazing? Learning and experiencing that has been refreshing, exciting, and encouraging. I've never been a part of a, of a program that could actually connect all the dots all the way to missions for me until recently. That has been profound for me. I didn't write that statement, but that's another, another man, another friend of mine that's in that has been in that process. And I think that captures very well uh, some of what we're trying to accomplish and help be an encouragement to churches to say, you really do have the answers. Not just the good news of Jesus Christ, but you actually have the ability and the relational tools and can love on people well. You know how to grow your church? Love people well. <laughs> we can love people well in a way that will make a difference in the city. And so I'm excited about that. So what we've covered today, the church is the greatest force for good in the world. In case anybody forgot to tell you that today. Be encouraged by that. 
We've looked at the big picture. We looked at the entire structure of the New Testament and what Paul was doing to establish people in the faith. If you wonder, like, now, why am I studying this again? Why are we doing it? That's why. It's the big picture. It is the plan that Jesus gave us. And just one example of how the collective impact of lots of us working together through vital families will make a difference for the kingdom. So that's my encouragement to you today. So what can we do with that to be more effective for Jesus Christ? Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, grateful for your word. I'm grateful for, for you and our relationship that you called us to, that you wanted a family that you called the church to be able to bring people together in a relational way to help each other, to learn from each other in community, to better understand the mission that you've called us to, even from our simple family structures, but into church and into mission in the world, Father. What a a genius plan that you've put in place for us if we can just learn to follow you better. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for for what you're doing here at South City Church. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.